The National Science Foundation is testing ways to streamline data sharing in and out of government. Now, it's got two years to build a national secure data service to standardize data access. It will then recommend to Congress whether to continue the program. For how the National Secure Data Service might function, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with former U.S. Chief Statistician Nancy Potok. This was kind of central to the recommendations of the Evidence-Based Policymaking Commission, because in order to produce high-quality evidence from data and bring in more data from research and from the federal statistical system and federal programs, there needed to be a place where you could get more depth and breadth and where you could get secure access. And so the commission came up with a national secure data service needed to be established. There were over 20 recommendations from the commission, and 11 of them were enacted into law in the Foundation of Evidence-Based Policymaking Act of 2018. The National Secure Data Service was not one that immediately got enacted into law, but Congress thought it was an idea worth pursuing and set up an advisory committee to do a two-year study on what would that really consist of? What would it look like? How would you implement it? So Nick and I decided that we would really do an in-depth look into this because we were a little more agile in terms of being able to do a study, to look at alternatives, to come up with ideas and recommendations that the advisory committee could then consider and that Congress could consider. If you've ever worked with the federal advisory committee, you know it can be kind of a bulky structure and it's a lot of people and it's kind of slow and this was going to be a two-year effort. So we just jumped in and said, maybe we can help inform this effort since we've been working on it all along. And that's kind of how we came to be involved in it, to take this kernel of an idea that Congress was intrigued with that came from the Evidence Commission and say, what does that really mean? What does it look like? How would it work? How would it operate? What does the governance structure look like? So we put out a paper that was kind of an initial look at this. And then more recently, a few weeks ago, we did a second follow-up paper that was a more in-depth look multiple streams of effort here, it seems. To tie it back to the advisory committee here, can you give me a better sense of the advisory committee on data for evidence buildings, current state of how they're looking at these things? I know you said that it can be a slow moving process here, but what's the current state of play? I will tell you with the caveat that this is an outsider's view. Had I stayed As the chief statistician of the U.S., I would have been chairing the committee because that's what the law does. It sets up the chief statistician as the chair of this committee. But I left government. It's a public committee. It's a federal advisory committee. So all of the meetings are public and I have been following it. So I just wanted to caveat that anything I say is as a member of the public, not with any kind of insider's view. What the committee has been doing, it has a a two-year time frame. So At the end of year one, it was required by law to submit a report to Congress, which it did. And it it affirmed the general principles for a national secure data service. Personally, I was very happy to see what was in that first year report because it did actually follow very closely with some of the things that Nick and I had put out in the first paper in terms of what are the overall functions of a national secure data service, what is kind of an overall conceptual framework for it. Our paper went farther 
than what the advisory committee put out. It was a much more general statement. It identified the issues that the advisory committee would take up in year two. Now they're in year two. The second and final report is due out, I say to Congress, but the law actually says it's recommendations to the director of OMB. So technically, it's a report to the director of OMB, but Congress, of course, is very interested in it, and it will go to both places. And it should pick up where the other report, the first year report, left off and get very specific about functions, privacy protections, governance structure, and how you would actually go about getting this started. Let's maybe unpack why this National Secure Data Service would be a good idea in the first place and why the commission thought it would be a good idea to have this as part of the federal government. Here's the vision. And I, I, if the vision gets realized, there will be tremendous value to the American public. Right now, we have a very splintered federal data infrastructure. So every agency kind of does their own thing. And within each agency, the bureaus often are not coordinating data. I also, when I was chief statistician, worked on the federal data strategy. My main co-leader of that was the federal CIO. And we put out a federal data strategy under the auspices of OMB. And one of the things that was very important as part of that strategy was to really take advantage of the wealth of data that the federal government has been collecting, both through the federal statistical system and and some of the things that people are most familiar with, like the census, um, like education surveys, like health surveys, all of those things, the economic indicators, that's all part of the federal statistical system. But there's a wealth of data that lies in administrative records that is collected by the federal government from people who are participating in federal programs in some way. My background, one of the things that I did before I was chief statistician was I was deputy director of the Census Bureau. Census Bureau made great use of collecting data from not only from the public, but from other agencies to really supplement and understand and get a much better depth of data to put together important information about the people in the economy. So linking these data sets is really critical. But you can't just willy-nilly sort of set up like a giant data warehouse and throw all federal data in there. There's privacy issues, there's security issues, there's ethical issues. The National Secure Data Service is a place where you can selectively, with an ethical, secure, privacy-protected framework, come up with kind of the most important questions of the day that you would need to answer from a public policy standpoint to understand our programs working effectively. Are they really helping the public? Right now, the federal government is very good at shoveling money out the door, and I think we saw this during the pandemic. Congress rightfully said, but how do we know we're achieving what we want to achieve? How do we know we're actually changing anything? You know, if we're going to put all this money out there for these programs, we need some evidence that it's working. And if it's not working, what does work? Former U.S. Chief Statistician Nancy Potok speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com.
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? 
well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right? That kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that. And then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And 
a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in in federal service? And she said, "Uh, isn't that for old people? (laughs) I said, "Uh, (laughs) um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.